to Max Pemberton, a doctor and Daily Mail columnist, and this is part three of a special three-part podcast for Mail Plus Health, where I speak to Dr. Richard Viney, consultant urologist at Queen Elizabeth Hospital in Birmingham. So welcome back, um, and this week we are covering, well, I suppose all the kind of bits and bobs that we haven't covered in the past two weeks. So in week one, uh, we covered the prostate, and then in week Two, we covered uh, erectile dysfunctional impotence, and now we're kind of covering all the other bits and bobs. Um, so the first question is, uh, I'm a father of three, and my wife wants me to have a vasectomy. Uh, to say I'm nervous and hesitant is an understatement. Is it really painful? I guess I also fear that that's, that's it once it's done. So we can maybe sort of talk about reversals uh, in, in, in a minute, but. So talk, what, what, even, what is a vasectomy? If you can explain what that is. So in the scrotum, there are two testicles. The scrotum is actually two chambers side by side. And each testicle has a little pipe that connects it to the back of the prostate called the vas deferens. And this is the tube along which the, 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 the finished sperms in the testis are propelled uh, to, to, into the chamber that is the prostate for ejaculation. So a means of trying to secure uh, uh, family planning for the male is to try and ideally to allow them to continue to enjoy sex and continue to ejaculate, but have no sperms in that ejaculate. Best way of doing that is you tie the two tubes, tie the vas. So that will stop sperms getting from the testis to the prostate. Prostate produces 40% of the ejaculate. So after vasectomy, you will still ejaculate. It will just look a little more watery and a little different. But um, there are a number of issues here. Um, so it's a very cheap, but you can actually feel it. It feels like a bootlace. So if you're in the bath, self-examining as all men should be doing at least a couple of times a year, looking for, for changes to the testis, like testicular cancer, have a little feel just above the testis and you'll feel literally like a, like a, a shoelace in, in between your thumb and finger. That's the vas. And so when you come for a vasectomy, that's what your doctor will spend most of his time feeling for. So you clean the area, you pinch with your thumb and finger the vas, you, you sort of bring it to the skin surface, put some local anesthetic in, tiny little nick, grab hold of the tube, pull it through the skin, you then put a couple of clips, cut a little segment of the tube away so you can check it under the microscope to make sure you've cut the correct structure. Because some gentlemen with large veins down there, like varicocele, it can be very difficult to tell what's vein and what's, what's vas. And then you've got the two cut ends, you'll tie one end off, cauterize the other, bury them in slightly different parts of the, the, the scrotum, and then you move to the other side. So in the old days, it was just a snip. You'd literally just cut the tube. But I, mean, I would say, listen to that, it sounds, sounds like, you know, very, very minor, practically nothing. But, yeah. I, but actually, when I then try and imagine what's actually happening, it's making, it's all, it's, you realise it's, it's, it's not maybe, it's, it's not quite as minor, maybe, as it's it sounds. the faint-hearted. And, and so one of the reasons why we've, we've, in, we've changed the way we operate is that when it was the old-fashioned snip, there was a quite a considerable amount of spontaneous reversal. So patients, you know, the body does what it does. It tries to heal itself. And if you've got two cut ends of a tube, the scarring process to bring those tube bends together and try and remodel them. And so you'd have a failure rate of between two and four in a thousand, depending on how you'd look at failure. So four in a thousand men would go on to start producing positive semen analysis at some point down the line after having been demonstrated to being infertile immediately after surgery. In another study, they demonstrated that uh, two in a thousand went on to have further children unexpectedly that were genetically theirs. And of course, you know, when that happens, there have been significant, there have been issues about, you know, wife beating and, 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 and assault because, of course, the, the, the partners assumed infidelity, whereas, in fact, it, it wasn't. 
and that was so only time will judge the way we do it these days but our expectation is that when they look at our failure rates in 20 30 years time they'll be very different because we do very different operation there. so it's a little bit more involved and we like to do most of them under local anesthetic because it's it's easier it's quicker it's probably safer um, but some patients don't lend themselves to that so if you're a gentleman with a with a very long saggy scrotum you're perfect for this kind of thing whereas if you're a gentleman with a relatively short scrotum and invariably i'm thinking people like prop forward spring to mind as gentlemen that generally have that kind of a scrotum it's thick short it's really really hard to find the vas doing that under local anesthetic is no fun and the longer you're spending the more twitchy the patient's getting the more uptight the scrotal skin gets because the scrotal skin has got muscle underneath it called the datos muscles that tightens up and it can become a nightmare so a lot of my colleagues don't enjoy doing this as an operation because it's considered minor surgery and it is but it's technically can be really really tough so it should in theoretically be painless but for some patients it can be a nightmare and those are the horror stories that you do hear about can you have it under general anesthetic that is going to be extremely challenging in the next three to five years the pandemic has, 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 has completely destroyed surgical practice. And so the stuff that's considered low uh, priority like this, I just don't see you actually getting it done in any kind of hospital setting. So clinics under local anesthetic, that's probably going to be your only option. Um, so if you've got a nice saggy scrotum, crack on. If you haven't, it might not be easy. Other things to think about is you are fertile for at least 12 weeks afterwards. Yeah, I've never understood this. How? how? I don't get the... Well, you've got, you've got tubes downstream, all of which have got sperms in them, and the sperms have got to move along those tubes uh, into the ejaculate and out. Um, admittedly, most of those sperms have moved on within a week or two, but some will linger, some will be a bit slower to come through. Um, and we say 12 weeks, but it's actually about 28 ejaculates. But ironically, you can't knock all that out in one weekend uh, because it doesn't quite work like that. Um, but uh, that's, that's the sort of the rationale behind why you're still fertile afterwards. And so if you take this gentleman and consider that he may take many years to actually get his operation, and by the time he got it, he's then got a further three or four months to wait till he's negative. The question I've got for him is how old is his partner? And might they reach a point where naturally they won't actually need this kind of a procedure anyway. So he's not buying lifelong infertility. He's only really buying it for the, for the length of his wife's or partner's fecundity. But once done, he really needs to consider himself sterile because we do a different job as to what was done in the, the old days. So we make it very much harder for nature to unpick the situation, let alone another surgeon. If he wanted it reversed, let's say a tragedy were to occur and he was to lose his family or something, or he meets another partner who's pushing to have children. Reversal can be done, but it's certainly not done under the NHS. You'd, so you'd have to be paying privately and it's an expensive uh, outing. And there's no guarantee the longer you've been vasectomized for, the less likely a good outcome for your surgery is going to be. Now, we'll measure the outcome of our surgery by the emission of sperm in an ejaculate. But that doesn't necessarily equate with a fertilized partner, which is how the couple will view their surgery. And the thing is, you can reverse a vasectomy. And initially, the patient's ejaculating. It's all seemingly good. And they'll be discharged. You're good to go. Off you go. And then two years later, they come back and say, well, it's not happened. And then you repeat the semen analysis and find that it's dried up again. And of course, where you've got the join ends, the, the, what we call the anastomosis, where we join the tubes, they can scar over. So when you do this procedure, you say to a patient, look, crack on, because I don't know how long this is going to, you know, th th this result will be good for. And equally, it's not unreasonable to actually take a semen, and, semen sample and bank it at that point. So if they are having no results and we find that they've gone, become infertile again down the stream, down the line, they can come back and apply to use their, their deposit in the bank, as it were.
So, so it sounds like actually years ago, there was a, it, it wasn't a very reliable operation, hmm. but actually that meant that it was easy to reverse. Whereas yep. now it's a much more reliable operation, but the downside of that is that really, you really, really got to be as committed to it as you possibly can be, because it's not going to be simply kind of, you know, popping along and saying, all right, can you untie my tubes, please, or whatever yeah. it is. It, 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 yeah, it's, it involves a microscope and usually about 90 minutes in, in theatre. It's, it's quite a difficult procedure, particularly I'm picking modern vasectomy. I mean, it used to be, I mean, my, my great uncle was a GP up in Derby. He did his own vasectomy after a after half a bottle of whiskey. Oh my God, I, I definitely want more than half a bottle. Half a bottle. It made quite a mess, by all accounts. <laughs> wow, okay, that definitely made me feel <laughs> quite faint now. Okay, next question, moving very swiftly on. Uh -huh. um, does being circumcised affect anything later in life? I'm under pressure to get my baby son done, but I don't want it to have bad ramifications for him in the future. Now, this is, I think, a very controversial topic, a very sort of complicated uh, topic. I mean, there's, yeah, there's a lot of issues just with the way that question's being framed. I mean, no one should ever feel under pressure to have any procedure, particularly a surgery. A surgery should be clinically indicated and therefore there shouldn't be a need for pressure. It either needs to be done or it doesn't. If it needs to be done, then decision needs to be made where and when and by whom. So my question is, why, why does someone feel this, this infant needs circumcising? Um, if it's, uh, the, the natural history of the, of the foreskin is an interesting one. People judge babies' foreskins by, through an adult lens, almost expecting the foreskin to be peeled back and what have you, but that's not the case, and nor should you push that. It can take up to 16 years for the foreskin to completely retract in men. Uh, and what's happening is that the foreskin initially when the baby's born is plastered to the head of the penis, the gland's penis. But it, uh, with time, it slowly lifts and peels off. Things like the production of waxy material called smegma help that. Equally, youngsters will be getting regular erections. When those erections occur, it causes the, the, the skin to slowly become looser. And you've got to allow nature to do its job. Mm. So yes, there was a tendency to circumcise kids when, if you couldn't peel, if, if mum couldn't feel the foreskin back to give the, the, the penis a clean. But there was a very, it was a Lancet publication by GP of all people. Who, who identified that actually the natural history was such that if you left kids to their own devices, almost all of them were fine by the age of 16. Some, in fairness, do have scarring and do get problems with their foreskin, causing recurrent infections, either of the skin or the urine, or get significant ballooning of the foreskin when they weep. Clearly, those kids are in a different category and need treatment. But the treatment in the first instance is often just a steroid cream, which loosens the tissues, accelerates the natural processes, and means surgery is avoidable but occasionally circumcision is required. If a circumcision is undertaken, by and large, is very little in the way of risk in the long term. What it does do though, is interrupts a little, tiny little artery that runs through the banjo string, for want of a better term, the frenulum, the little string that sits at the back of the, 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 the foreskin. That frenular artery supplies blood to the tip of the penis and that loss of blood supply can cause some narrowing of the meatus, the hole that the patient wheezes through, which can cause spraying in later life. And if that occurs, it, again, it can be easily addressed with a little dilatation, but occasionally it can be problematic and they need a more formal reconstruction of that area. So it's not without its risks. And there's all the ethics and issues around uh, female genital mutilation. The question has to be raised whether circumcision without medical justification isn't in part the same thing, particularly at that age, the child's not involved with the decision-making process at all. Yeah. There is a, in America, uh, 
circumcision is still very common. 70% of American men are circumcised, and that's not for religious purposes. And it begs the question, why? And this, this doesn't reflect well on the urological community in America at all. Well, because they should know better. And of course, you know, if 70% of men are having a, a, a circumcision, that's, you know, a massive chunk of fees and work. Now, they argue that it protects against sexually transmitted infections and uh, penile cancer in later life. And there is some slim evidence to support that. But if you look at the numbers needed to treat uh, the amount of circumcisions you need to do to make that happen, the benefits are vastly outweighed by the complications and consequences to these uh, individuals going forward in the rest of their lives. So unless there's a very good reason, I wouldn't be rushing to have that child circumcised at all. And also it can affect the sexual experience later on in life. I suppose is the other thing is that yeah, you I mean, make a decision about your child's future uh, and if it's not based on a medical thing I mean I feel quite strongly about this and it's interesting how we sort of we, we very you know absolutely adamantly understandably against sort of female genital mutilation and yet actually when it comes to male genitals we have a very sort of entirely different approach it seems uh, where we sort of view this as like well it's parental choice it should be okay if it's for religious reasons that's all right and we kind of you know actually this is not this, this is an operation it's a surgical uh, intervention that is not without risk it's not without risk i mean I was, I, I was consulting with a young gentleman from the middle east over the phone not long ago and he'd basically lost his penis for a circumcision done as a child and looking for reconstruction options uh, and you do very very rarely but still hear about the old baby bleeding to death from a community done circumcision by you know a non-medical practitioner so and, and those are absolute tragedies in the pursuit of what exactly i mean it, it, it is yeah I, I like you feel very strongly about it you've got to be careful you can start treading on on some religious toes but um yeah it, it, i think ultimately that kind of decision should sit with the individual rather than their parents yes i was quite surprised when i sort of worked in psychosexual medicine i've been i was quite surprised at the number of people that were presenting who basically had very limited sensation at the end of their in the glands uh, yeah. with the kind of sexual part of the, of the penis um, and and as a result of being circumcised and I, I, it was also often as a result of being circumcised I, I think presumably you know sort of baby um, uh, age um, where clearly the kind of nervous tissue had been disrupted um, by the procedure um, but anyway yeah. Yeah, or it's a bit like feet, you know, if you were used to wearing nice shoes and nice socks, your feet are nice and sensitive. You'd be walking barefoot, you know, it, it, it toughens the skin up and it makes them less sensitive. I mean, you're right. I mean, the irony is in the States now, there's, there's circumcision reversal surgery. Yeah. And so the urologists are creating work for themselves. I mean, it, it's, <laughs> I don't know, don't, don't get me started. But okay. uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's a, it, it is a tricky one. But if, if you, the very fact you're conceiving it as pressure for this individual means that you should perhaps be kicking back against it and saying, you know, no, let's just wait. Okay, so uh, next question. Every time I pee, it's excruciatingly painful and my urine is cloudy. Mm -hmm. I Googled it and it sounds like a urine infection. I thought only women got them. What's the treatment? Right, well, firstly, infection in the urinary tract has usually come from the outside world. And to get into the urinary tract, it's had to climb up the pipe. So I use an incy-wincy spider analogy in this setting and the, the bacteria trying to work their way up the pipe. And then when you have a wee, it's like down comes the rain, washes Incy out, and then Incy's got to start climbing up again. So one of the reasons we encourage people to drink lots is so they can pee quite regularly and sluice their lower urinary tract out. The distal third of the pipe in men is covered with bacteria. So they've got to get up the other two thirds. Um, 
and in women, that's very easy because the urethra is very short. But of course, in men, the urethra will be much longer. It's very, very, very rare. It's so rare, in fact, that when infections occur in men, it begs the question whether there's another problem going on. The first question has to be, is this a sexually transmitted infection? And, if, and so the STI route is the first route for most men in this scenario. But once an STI has been ruled out, the question is, is there some other process that's driving infection? And where you tend to think of water and bacterial growth or microbial, uh, micro, microbial growth, it's worth looking at rivers and streams and ponds. If you go into a, a fast running river or stream with a glass and pull out a sample of water and have a look, it's nice and clear. If you go into the pond and do the same thing, it's horrible, turbid, smelly water. And the reason is, is any stasis in water allows microbial populations to flourish. And so same is true in the urinary tract. If you've got any obstruction to urine or any residual urine floating around, either in the bladder or in the kidney, it can stagnate and you can get infection. So one of the questions we we're asking ourselves is, is there some obstruction to the urine in, in the male? And most common cause for urinary uh, obstruction in men is enlargement of the prostate. Um, the other thing that could cause infections is our, our stones. So if you go back to that stream and dip your hand in and pick a stone out and feel it, it'll feel all slimy. And that slime is what's called a, a biofilm. And in that biofilm are bacteria. And they're relatively protected in there. So if you give antibiotics, you'll destroy any loose bacteria, but any bacteria sat in that biofilm uh, are relatively resistant to the action of the antibiotic. And so the infection will just keep coming back if it's coming off a stone. So the investigations we'd undertake once an STI has been ruled out would be an ultrasound scan looking for signs of obstruction to the urinary tract and, uh, and stasis of urine and any stones. We would then probably, depending on the age of the individual, contemplate a little camera inspection of the lower urinary tract looking for other things like little pockets hanging off the side of the bladder called diverticuli, stones in the bladder, uh, get a look at the prostate, look for obstruction, and most importantly, look at the lining of the bladder because the bacteria should find it really hard to latch on to the lining of the bladder. And the fact that they've managed in this setting does make you wonder whether there's an issue with the lining of the bladder, like potentially early cancer change. So, so I suppose that the, the, the other key thing here is don't Google it, don't, don't speak to a doctor. <laughs> no, I think like part of the problem is, uh, I suppose my, my concern is with people Google symptoms um, and sometimes either scare themselves, but equally sometimes reassure themselves. But the best thing to do is to see a doctor, they can get your, your urine tested. I think you're quite right. I think the, if, if you're thinking of Googling something, then why not ask a professional? We, we, that's what we're here for. That's what you pay your taxes for. And the reason we're there is because we'd rather find these things early rather than have you sit on them for six months and then present when it's too late to do anything about it. But having said that, in the current environment, it's completely understandable why people are taking that route because getting access to doctors is, is so hard at the moment. It's, I suppose so it's better than nothing. Yeah. Okay, uh, and the final question. I've started passing blood when I urinate, uh, which is rather alarming to say the least. I am 70 and an ex-smoker. What could it be a sign of? So blood in the urine, traces of blood in the urine are actually quite common. 5% of the population at any one time will have traces of blood in the urine that they can't see. And only 5% of those individuals will actually have a, pro a significant process. But when you can see the blood yourself, that is a real issue and needs urgent and prompt investigation because 20 to 25 percent of people in that particular situation will have a major underlying problem, particularly if it's painless. If the blood is associated with pain, then it's more likely to be due to infection. But if it's painless, then that's a real worry to us as, as, as medical professionals. And we'd, we'd be wanting to run a series of diagnostics within 28 days, particularly in smokers. And the kind of things we're worried about are cancers, basically, of the kidney or lining of the bladder. 
And both these different cancer types are more common in smokers. And so you need to go and get yourself seen and get yourself referred. You would need at least an ultrasound scan of your urinary tract and a flexible camera endoscopy of the lining of the bladder where we slip a tiny little catheter into the bladder. Uh, and we then take things from there. So it sounds like this is another case where really somebody needs to, to, to go and get medical advice um, as soon as possible. There's no ambiguity here. You don't mess about. Whenever you see blood where it shouldn't be, be it in your spit, be it in your stool, be it in your urine, coming from an orifice somewhere, you just got to get it checked out. It goes without saying. Sitting on it is, is just a mistake. That's very, very good advice. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time. That's all we've got time for today. If you want more from Richard, then you can go to thebladderclinic.co.uk and you can find us on Spotify, Apple and Google. And whilst you're there, please leave us a review. 